You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today's interview was born out of my obsession with the succulent relatives of our milkweeds, the stapeliads. There's been a lot of reorganization in this group of plants. A lot of things have been moved out of the genus stapelia and into places like orbia and duvalia. There's also the serapugias, but they're all members of this family, Apocynaceae. We will probably be most familiar with plants like the milkweeds or oleander or periwinkle. But my guest today specializes in this group and has spent a lot of time teasing out what this group of plants can teach us about the evolution of pollination syndromes. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Jeff Allerton. He's a professor at the University of Northampton. And along with plenty of colleagues, they spend most of their time looking at the myriad floral shapes, colors, smells and functions of the flowers within the family of Apocynaceae. This is an awesome discussion. I had my mind blown. I did not know the complexity of this group. I've only begun to scratch the surface, and I'm pretty sure many of you will feel the same way. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Allerton. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Jeff Allerton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? You're most welcome, Matt. So, yeah, I'm Jeff Allerton. I'm Professor of Biodiversity at the University of Northampton in the UK. If you're not familiar with Northampton or its geographical position, it's approximately an hour from everywhere. It's an hour (laughs) from London, an hour from Oxford, an hour from Cambridge, an hour from Birmingham, right in the middle of the country. Uh, and about as far from the sea as you can get. I've been there for 22 years now, teaching there and working on uh, my research, which is mainly focused on plant pollinator interactions. That's interesting. Pollinator interactions obviously starts with either plants or insects. Were you always into plants, or is this something you kind of came to later in your academic career as a great system for studying interactions? Um that's a really interesting question. I, when I did my PhD, uh, which I completed in 93, I think at the time I described myself as a plant reproductive ecologist, hmm. but I was also working with, with pollinators. The plant I was working on was, was bumblebee pollinated, and I was also interested in seed predation. And I guess I had to kind of put it down into, into numbers. I guess I was kind of 70% plant, 30% <laughs> animal. Now I I guess I'm sort of 50-50, but I'm kind of, it, it sort of swings, you know, I'm swinging back more to plants, I think, at the, at the moment. Yeah, and it, it's this notion, these, these sort of old ideas about, you know, are you a botanist, are you a zoologist, and, <laughs> and, and so on. I, I find them a little bit frustrating because I, I think we've moved on from those sort of 19th century ideas of scientists' place within the the uh, the academy. Sure, yeah, that's that's a really good point to make. 
you know, if you're studying any form of ecological system, whether that be plant or animal, inevitably those organisms are interacting with the world around them. And uh, pollination is just one, one branch of this great interactive world that we live in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I can't think of any pollination ecologist or pollination biologist who just study flowers and don't in, in some way look at, at the, the animals that are doing the pollinating. Sure. Um, I think all of them have, have got those interactions at the, at the back of their mind. Yeah, that would be a very weird way to approach pollination ecology. <laughs> Just that would, I don't care who's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the exceptions would be people who are studying wind pollination. Oh, okay. Uh, there you go. Yeah, but, but or even water pollination. But even there, uh, you know, there are herbivores, uh, there are fungal symbionts and so <laughs> on. Yeah, it's hard to get away from interactions. Sure. So pollination is a big topic. There is a lot to cover and a lot of fascinating things to discover. Where do you fit in here? What kind of system do you work in? What kind of interests do you have? What kind of questions are you asking? That sort of thing. Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Loaded. (laughs) Loaded, yeah. I I think of myself as a generalist. I think, you know, I, I, I don't have a single system that I work with. I don't even have a single theme above and beyond the fact that I'm interested in, you know, the interactions, the diversity of interactions, how they vary geographically, phylogenetically as well. The, one of the constant, uh, above and beyond the fact that most of my research is on plant pollinator interactions, one of the constants that's, that's run through my career over the last 23 years or so has been uh, the family Apocinaceae, the dogbane family. Uh, and I guess if, if I have any group of organisms that I think of as being a, a, a model system that I use, it's, it's a possinacy. But I've certainly not worked exclusively on those. Right on. Now, this is really cool because your background does hint at this. It's, it's obvious when you start reading about uh, the work that you've done that, yes, there is a lot to be learned about the kind of the diversity. You, you, you mentioned biodiversity earlier and you know, certain systems are very specific, one or maybe two or a single genera of pollinators to one genera or type of plant, or there's these large generalist systems. So I guess, how do you start looking at these systems in a way that makes sense to you um, from like a generalist or specifist sort of way? And how did you then stumble in recently or over time into a Posenaceae and what makes that such an attractive system? Well, if you look back in the in the sort of traditional literature on, on plant pollinator interactions, going you know back to to Darwin, the types of questions that were of interest to pollination ecologists back then were questions such as, why does this orchid have a very long nectar spur? Mm. Can I predict the, the it's the classic you know moth pollinated orchid that that Darwin predicted, and and sort of towards the end of the twentieth century, those sort of questions about specificity within pollination systems and the fact that you you did have the what seemed to be quite tightly co-evolved systems seemed to be the main focus of of attention for. For most researchers, not not all by any means, but but certainly the, the literature was biased towards mm. towards that. And then in the early to mid nineties, there were there were a, a number of us, people like Carlos Herrera and uh, Pedro Hadano in in Spain, uh, my colleagues uh, Nick Vaza and, and Mary Price in the USA, and, and others as well, who were saying, well, okay, these these 
really specialized systems are are interesting, but do they represent the majority of the flowering plants? Because we look around, we see lots of composites and embellifers and so on, which seem to be generalists. Even some of the, the supposedly really specialized systems, they may be specialized at, at one level. You know, you've got a plant which is hummingbird pollinated, but actually it's, it's pollinated by a wide range of different hummingbirds. So these are sort of questions that were starting to be developed in the, in the early 90s. And we, I was co-author with a, with a, on a paper with Nick Vaza in 96 in ecology, uh, which set out some of these these questions and argued for the importance of generalization as an adaptive strategy in plants and uh it seemed to make a little bit of a, a bit of an impact it's now been cited over 1500 times Whoa. and it's interesting lots of people liked it but a lot of people hated it <laughs> uh, and it polarized opinion and, and as soon as we discovered that lots of people didn't like it we thought yeah this is great we were but clearly we're, we're touching a nerve with, with <laughs> some with some people and we're, we're, we're onto something so following on from that i was looking for a, a system where i could test some of these ideas look at the relative portions of specialized and generalized flowers within uh, you know, single plates of, of plants and the two groups that jumped out at me were the orchidaceae and the asclepiadaceae hmm. and lots and lots of people were working on the orchidaceae and so it made sense to me to follow the the path less traveled uh, <laughs> and start working on a, on a sclepiodacy because you know you're familiar with a sclepius in north america but it's a much larger family a much more diverse family than, than just a, a sclepius there's been quite a lot of work done on sclepius and, and some groups in other parts of the world as an aside of course sclepiodacy no longer exists right. as a family it's now a subfamily within within a possinacy but, but the the reason for focusing on the orchids or the asclepiads is that both of those families, despite being unrelated, produce their pollen as, as packets, right. as pollinia. In the case of the orchids, they stick adhesively to the to the pollinators. In the, in the case of most of the asclepiids, they, they clip on mechanically. And of course, what that means is, is that you can identify legitimate pollinators of these flowers much more readily <laughs> than you can if you're dealing with, with flowers which have got free pollen. And you can do things like measuring numbers of pollinia that have been removed from flowers, measuring numbers that are, that are, that are remaining on pollinators, and so on. And so we, I started developing uh, a database of plant pollinator interactions within the Asclepiads in an effort to, to start to look at relative proportions of specialists and generalists, how that changed over space, and asking questions about latitudinal trends in, in specialization because we expect the tropics to have more specialized mm. interactions. And that's true at some levels and for some groups of plants, but it's not true at all levels and it's certainly not true for all groups of plants. And so it just, it, it seemed like a nice model system. But then of course the taxonomists came along and decided that Sclepiodacy no longer <laughs> existed. <laughs> and uh, sank, sank it within the uh, Parsonaceae which meant that now I, I was kind of considering a, a much larger family. But nonetheless, a very interesting one because it, it shows sort of a grade of adaptation from free pollen in the less derived groups of, of a possinacy through to these pollinia within the more derived groups uh, and makes for a really interesting system from that point of view. 
Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times you see those taxonomic revisions and it throws a real wrench in the gears, but it sounds like, at least in this case, like you said, it opened up to this gradient and allows a larger breadth of questions to be asked. But going back to the beginning, I like this idea of sort of the trends of science and, and kind of how those change through time. You mentioned it was really big to talk about specialists for a long time, and then the idea of generalists came in, and not only did it uh, you know make some waves just with citations and such, but also upset some people. And, and that's always fascinating to me as a, a plant communicator, someone who talks to the general public, because I feel like it's a, a really sexy idea that a flower might have one or two very specific pollinators. And I see that time and time again is when you talk about rare plants, the public will chime in and say, well, maybe it's missing a pollinator. They're very much attached to this idea, but it's never that simple. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Even within a taxonomic group, there's gradations and, and variations on multiple themes. And again, coming back to the practicality of it all, it sounds like a posinaceae with a sclepiadaceae melted back into it is just right for the testing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, there were lots of people in other parts of the world working on, on a posinads and asclepiads, uh, which meant that the amount of data that was, was available was increasing year on, on year. So we, we published our first sort of overview of um, asclepiadaceae in 97. That was my, myself and... Uh, a German colleague, Sigrid Lied Schumann, and then since then we've been we've been working with some of the other smaller clades within the Ponsonaceae, Cirripedia in particular, and just trying to get a, a, a sense of how diverse pollination systems are, and, and asking these questions about specialized versus generalized. It, it, it's interesting what you say there about about members of the public thinking, oh yeah, every every flower has its own pollinator, and every pollinator has, has its own flower. If you look at those plants which only seem to have a single pollinator, most of the time those pollinators are themselves generalists. Huh. And they and they visit a wide range of other plants within a community. And this makes, you know, absolute sense in terms of long-term evolution. Because if you're a single pollinator and you have a single flower, or a single and, and a single flower and you have a single pollinator, You've kind of doubled the chances of going extinct <laughs> in the in the long term. If one goes extinct, the others the others going to going right. to go extinct. Doomed. Yeah, exactly. And and the only real exceptions to this are those pollination systems that seem to have evolved from seed predation interactions. But mm. so things like figs and fig wasps and mm. yuccas and yucca moths, which are certainly not representative of, of most plant pollinator interactions. And pollination systems in which the flowers are deceptive and are attracting insects, which don't, typically flies, which don't normally act as pollinators, but which nonetheless are are very, very abundant in a community because uh, they have larvae which feed on on feces or or carrion and so on. There are really very, very few examples of, of what we consider to be typical plant pollinator interactions where it's, a, it's a, a strict one-to-one interaction. Huh. That's curious to learn, and I didn't even know to what level that would ring true. But again, it, from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense. Very few groups of plants have long enough flowering seasons to support an entire generation of insects. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to think about, yeah, sure, the flower might be specialized, but the the, the insect visiting it probably isn't. 
it just brings up so many great questions. But from a standpoint of Apostanaceae, you have, you know, on one side, flowers that are not obvious to that family, like oleanders or periwinkle. And then in the middle, you kind of have what you'd expect out of the milkweeds or the dogbanes. But then on the very far extreme, you have the serapegias and the stapeliads, these highly derived, just wild looking floral morphologies. Do you see from an evolutionary standpoint then that this is a logical progression from sort of a more generalist pollination system to the more derived systems, or does it kind of mix out all over the family tree for this group of plants? Um, no, it's certainly it's certainly no progression in in that sense. And in fact, even within these these more derived groups that appear to be more specialized. Some of them actually can be highly generalized. They can they can be phenotypically very specialized, but actually be pollinated by a wide range of of insects. So so Cirripedia, uh, which are the, these trap flowers, analogous to Aristolochia, it's a big genus, about two hundred species. Some of those are pollinated by a single species of fly, uh, microdipteran, typically three, two or three millimeters in length. Oh, wow. And in fact, you're probably familiar with Serapegia woodii, which is often grown as a houseplant. Yeah, I've got one blooming in my sunroom right now. A lot of flowers yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in its native range, that is pollinated by flies of the genus Falsipomyia in the, the family Malikidae. If you bring it into cultivation, it attracts flies to the flowers, but really? the flowers are from the same genus, Falsipomyia. Huh. So even though you can you can move it thousands of miles away from its from its native range in Africa, it'll still attract the same insects. Having said that, there are other species of, of Cirripedia where we know that there are dozens of different types of flies which act as pollinators from numerous different families but they, the, the flowers themselves still have a very similar morphology. Wow. And a lot of that, I'm guessing, has to do with this combination of scent production and morphology from the visual acuity standpoint. I don't know how these microdipterans or any flies really sort out, but this idea that, again, you could take what looks like a very specialized system thousands of miles away, and it still works not only with flies, but with the genera or the group of flies that just happened to also be present on this continent. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it scent is probably the, the most important factor okay. there. A colleague of mine, Anne-Marie Heiduck, who uh, is a postdoc in Germany at the moment, she's worked on some Cirripedia species from China uh, and from Africa, which seem to be producing a scent which is chemically identical to the scent which is produced by insects when they're attacked by spiders. What? Okay, bear, bear, bear with me. This is getting complicated. So Bring it on. So, so when insects are attacked by spiders, quite often they produce scents, and, and I'd hesitate to call them pheromones, but they produce scents which... Uh, maybe warnings, or, or it may ju- just be a sort of a byproduct of the fact that a, that a spider is kind of sucking dry, uh, <laughs> and they pr- and they produce fluids from within their, their body. Now those fluids are fed upon by a group of flies, which are collectively known as jackal flies. Oh. Flies come in, they start feeding on the fluids, and they're attracted in by the scent. So there are some cirripedia species which are mimicking the scent of a struggling insect. 
and they're pollinated by these jackal flies. Wow. Yeah, exactly. What, what's interesting is that there's huge floral diversity across Cirripedia. And an unresolved question in my mind is, is that if, if scent is the main um, attractant for these flowers, what is driving that floral diversity? Because that doesn't seem to correlate with the type of, of pollinators. And these pollinators don't seem to be using those visual cues of, of colour and patterning. I think for many of these flowers, you know, they, they're green and they're purple and brown and splodgy. I suspect many of them are, are coloured that way to camouflage them from herbivores. But also that these, these flowers that may well be on a, a sort of a random evolutionary walk, that the, the flower colour and patterning isn't actually adaptive at all. I've no proof of that other than a gut feeling, but it'd be a really interesting one to test. Sure. That's a really curious idea because oftentimes evolution is taught in the light of if it works or increases fitness or, you know, only the strongest survive, but it could also just be random chance. If it works well enough, there's no real pressures against it doing something. Or again, this idea that flowers could be camouflaging themselves. That's, that is so much to think about and probably an entire lifetime's worth of questions worth of asking just on that regard. Yeah, and there's there are precedents for that within within the family. Um, there's a genus called Pachycarpus within in, um, South Africa, which Adam Shuttleworth and Steve Johnson have, have worked on. I've done some work on it as as well. And the flowers there are pollinated by spider hunting wasps, Pompilidae, <laughs> and uh, those flowers are indistinguishable from the background vegetation when you look at the at the color in the, in the same color space as as, uh, as an insect would be would be viewing them the insects can't actually distinguish between the flowers and the background vegetation wow and then again just heightens this idea that scent production is so important especially when you're trying to attract certain types of insects it just overruns the rest of <laughs> the sensory uh, stimuli i guess yeah 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 um, I think, and this again is, is one of the, I think the exciting things about uh, pollination biology at the moment is that you know, relatively new techniques in uh, scent analysis, spectral analysis, molecular phylogenetic analysis as well, of course, is, is opening up whole new areas for us to, to study these interactions. Even a few, even a couple of decades ago, probably um, some biologists would have thought that all of the interesting questions within <laughs> Pollination biology has already been answered, and actually we're, we're, we're still scratching the surface of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. One thing I've gained a, a, a big appreciation for is just how difficult pollination studies can be. You know, just because something is visiting it doesn't mean it's effective. Where is it going? How often? What's the cue here? And and another thing I've really come to appreciate is the, the diversity of floral scents. Like you said, new technologies are opening the door to detecting things that the human nose just isn't evolved to detect. And even if it can, very small amounts of scent maybe not be detectable. It's, it's easy to see where these the ones that stink to high heaven like a rotting corpse or have the most intoxicating floral fragrance those are obvious to humans but it's these small things these curious things these pheromones or hormonal triggers that that's got to open up so many new doors to pollination that it's it's almost staggering to think about yeah yeah no absolutely and actually you know just going back to syrupegia and the kind of carrion flowers as well that you mentioned, the stapeliads. <laughs> we, we used to know that they were closely related, and we thought they were, they were kind of sister groups to, to each other. 
we now know that in, in fact Cirripedia is not a natural genus. And this, this, yeah, and this this trap flower pollination has evolved multiple times within that group, and also been lost within that group. So, so you've got these these large carrion flowers interspersed on the the phylogenetic tree with the trap flowers as well. Wow! Uh, and in fact, last year, a South African botanist Peter Bruns wrote a paper with some some colleagues arguing that that whole group, Cirripedia plus Stapeliids plus uh, genus called Brachystelma, should in fact just be considered a single genus, Cirripedia, wow. which would which would be huge. I mean, eight, seven, eight hundred species in total. And I, th- I think, you know, phylogenetically it makes sense, mm. but, it, but from a, a Linnaean taxonomic perspective, it, it creates quite a bit of chaos. And uh, as you can imagine, the traditional taxonomists are not happy about, <laughs> about that at all. But, you know, within a, within a generation or two, it may be that we're calling all of these things Cirripedia, yeah. which, which is, is the older name. That's a wild overhaul to even comprehend because, you know, I fancy myself a bit of a collector. And, and yeah, it does make sense, just anatomically speaking, to group the trap flowers, group the stapeliids that have these outlandish starfish-looking flowers. But, gee, if they end up melding it all together, that's got to be one genera with the most outlandish floral diversity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just incredible. And most... There is a dated phylogeny for uh, for that whole group, and it looks as though most of that diversity has has evolved over the last five to ten million years. So this is not an ancient group. This is a recent radiation across Africa, Asia, then into northern Australia. Dang, my appreciation for this group has just grown exponentially. <laughs> <laughs> That's so yeah, much to think about. It's a great group, and, and that and that's only one clade. Yeah, <laughs> there's pl- there's plenty there's plenty more where that came. Right, and now I'm you know I, I think anyone listening at this point is is really starting to understand why you you dove in with vigor into Apostasy yeah. and 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 just the the fertile ground for thought and curiosity and, and experimentation, but. You know, zooming out a little bit, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that it's also great because it spans this spectrum of free pollen, what we think about normally is just dust going around, getting stuck on hairs of or, or whatever. And then on the other side, you have these pollinia, these little packets that either are sticky or mechanically getting stuck to the insects. As, as far as the family is concerned... Do you see intermediates, or is it you have dust pollen, free pollen, free pollen, and then suddenly pollinia? You know what, and um, what's driving that? Yeah, you you do you do have. I mean, it, it's it's always dangerous to think about things as kind of living fossils or <laughs> like or living kind of intermediate species because clearly that you know these these are species that have been around for a long yeah. time. But but if you look across the, the phylogeny from the less derived groups, which to the revolfioids, all the way through to the more derived Asclepiads, you do see a change, and you do see what appear to be sort of intermediate forms. So within the genus Apocynum, for example, which you, you've got in North America, you have what seem to be sticky, what are termed translators. Which which stick onto to an insect and glue the pollen onto the body of the of the insect. Later, when you get into an African group called the Secaminads, some family Secaminoidae, you've got again. I hate the word primitive. <laughs> That's okay. But for, one, but for want of a better word, they look like 
primitive and, and less well-formed pollinaria, so, so pollinia plus the attachment device. In another old-world group, African plus Asian, which is the Periplicoidae, you have, again, sticky translators, but with free pollen in a sort of a spoon-shaped structure in the translator, and they glue to, usually to the head of flies and, and wasps. And I, I liken it to a sort of flying anther. You've got these, <laughs> these insects flying around with these, these structures sticking out the front, front of their head, pollinating as they go along. And then once you get into, into the Asclepiads proper, then you, you get the five sets of pollinaria with pollinia each. If we take that as a, as a model for how pollinia have evolved within the family, then you can see that, that the, the sort of development of in, increasing complexity over time. Now, what's interesting then is, is that the former Asclepiadaceae, uh, the Asclepiadoidae, is by far the most diverse clade of those groups that I've just been describing. Okay. So uh, there's something like 5,300 species in the family in total. About 3,300 of them are within the Asclepiadoidae. Wow. And then within the others, you know, Ravulfioids, 850, 860, about 800, Paraplicoids, 180, 200, and second monoids, 150, 160. So the Asclepiads proper are, are by far the most diverse group. Now, whether that's cause and effect, whether they are <laughs> more <laughs> successful because they've got these pollinia, we don't know. Um, certainly, you know, they're in the family as a whole is in the top 10 or 11 families of flowering plants sure. for species richness. Uh, and of course, up there near the top are, are the orchids as well, which also have pollinia. Is it a cause and effect? Has it, has it resulted in higher rates of speciation or lower rates of extinction? Uh, at the moment, we don't really know. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really curious question to ask because when I think of orchids or anything that has a pollinia, it's it's essentially the male effort of the flower gets one shot, or in the case of you know the milkweeds I have in my garden, five opportunities. Whereas yeah. dust can go everywhere. There's a lot of curious questions that could be asked about that, and it's it's got to feel good as someone who goes into science that's curious about the world to have that, but it also must be kind of frustrating at the same time too because then like you said you get this cause and effect what's what's happening here yeah and and i think you know because we've got what seem to be either intermediate forms or, or forms which are uh less complex uh with either free pollen or, or sort of semi-pollinear if you like we can actually set up testable hypotheses about things like pollination efficiency and so on and um, an American colleague of, of mine, Tanya Livschultz, has just quite recently published a paper where she's tested this for the first time and sure enough found greater pollination efficiency in the more derived groups compared to the to the less derived group. Hmm. Uh, and that's the first time that's that's been that's been demonstrated. So it may relate to pollination efficiency, but you rather than just scattering your pollen everywhere, you get a more focused movement of, of pollen and, and a greater opportunity for a, a, a pollinium to fertilize all of the ovules within a, within a flower. I suspect the other thing which, which is going on here, though, is that by packaging your pollen into fairly resistant, often quite waxy masses, you're increasing the lifespan of that pollen huh. um, and reducing the likelihood of it of it dying over time. You know, in, in some groups of plants, pollen only lasts 
a matter of hours really? after release. Yeah, and it dies usually through desiccation. Whereas if you can mass all of your pollen together and you put a waxy coating over the the top of it, in theory, you can increase the time that that pollen stays alive, which is great where you have plant populations that are in relatively low density and using insects like a lot of flies, which don't visit flowers very often. Mm. So these pollen areas just, just sit around on the insects for for days or possibly even weeks before they visit a flower of the same species. And again, if that's true, one of the predictions should be that Asclepiad population should be in low density. And that, that's actually what, what we find for many, many species. Things like Asclepias syriaca notwithstanding, where you, <laughs> yeah. you get huge you get huge populations. But uh, in, in many other parts of the world, the, the Asclepiads that we, we find, you, know, you find one in flower, and then you have to hunt extremely hard over, over a wide area to, to find another one. Yeah, I had never considered that fact. And it makes sense, too. Again, like you said, orchids, these plants that generally you don't see en masse. And even from Syriaca's standpoint, who the heck knows what was going on on this continent before we carved it all up and and produced tons of Syriaca habitat. Now, we're obviously spraying them to death again. But, uh, yeah, Yeah. that's, that's really curious how kind of the meta population dynamics of a species distribution can play into the overall evolutionary uh, advantages and disadvantages of not only just the pollinators, but the timing of everything. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, at at one point, uh, up until about, I think, about year 2000, all Serapagia species were CITES listed. Really? Uh, Yeah, and they were were listed because there was a a trade in them, clearly amongst enthusiasts who, uh, who wanted to grow them. But also because, you know, they were rare in the wild. But then it was pointed out that, that all of them are rare all the time in the wild. You hardly, <laughs> you, you, with few exceptions, you, you don't often see them. So actually to, to CITES list the whole genus just for that reason seems a bit nonsensical. There were, there were other factors going on. Sure. Yeah. One of the things that was going on. One, one way is, you know, regulating trade is often very different than kind of what's going on with the habitat. But... Yeah, that's really curious, too, because, again, going back to this fact that these are not flowers that they they look outlandish to us, but maybe in situ, it's a lot less obvious. I know reading about the habitat, a lot of them grow kind of under shrubs or mixed in with shrubs, highly spaced on the landscape. So much to think about. (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, okay, backing up again, I mean, we're... We're in this technological revolution. A lot of things are becoming cheaper, a lot easier to get your hands on chemical analyses that probably weren't as easy to do 10, 20 years ago. You know, what what, what are some of the questions that are on the horizon with this? And, and where do you see sort of this difficulty of testing and, and getting the proper setup for an experiment and then going forward to actually collecting data that might lend to a certain hypothesis or another? Well, at, at the moment, we, we've got a, a large paper in press with, um, the Journal Annals of Botany, which is, has brought together all of the published data and a huge amount of unpublished data on plant pollinator interactions within within the family as a as a whole, and has presented it as a single kind of coherent whole, and asking questions about how those pollinators are distributed across the, the family, uh, where do we see particular kinds of pollination systems like like uh, fly pollination. Um, evolving and, and so on and 
um, I was really amazed with the amount of data we were able to to bring together for that for that analysis. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were were, were giving us un, unpublished data um, in in return for co-authorship. So we we've got seventy five authors on the <laughs> on the paper. One day I'm, I you can interview me for a podcast on how to manage <laughs> yeah, seventy five no, authors on a on a paper. But um, Regardless of that, what it, what it means is that we, we've got uh, data for um, a 10% sample of the, the species within the family from across the phylogeny as a, as a whole. Some areas of the phylogeny are better represented than, than others. So, though even with Asclepius, you know, it's it's a big genus, which actually uh, is not just North American. There are, there are species in Southern Africa which are assigned to the genus Asclepius. Whether they belong in, in Asclepius or, or not is, is debatable, but they're certainly very closely related. But, but even across Asclepius, you know, we've, we've, we've probably only got a, um, a, a sample of about maybe 10% of that. There's, wow. there's a lot we don't know about that genus. But, we, so, but we've got this, this based on analysis which shows us what we know so far in terms of uh, the phylogenetic patterns of use of, of different pollinators, uh, but also the biogeographic patterns as well, and uh, some really great examples of convergent evolution, particularly amongst fly-pollinated groups and amongst uh, the, the moth-pollinated groups. And what, what that then tells, gives us is a roadmap for those clades where we have relatively little data, which are, which are poorly studied but which could, which do actually form groups of plants which have got sort of key innovations, things like you know you know those that are down in in the less derived parts of the phylogeny where pollinaria first start evolving mm. and so on. So what I'm hoping to do is the next sort of ten to twenty years or, or so is 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 that researchers will start going out into the field collecting data on on these plants and their and their pollinators and enable us to to understand the uh, the diversity and the evolution of pollination systems more fully within the family, uh, and also start testing some predictions for for some of the flowers that we see while we had a stab at what we think the pollinators are. Uh, for example, there's, there's a, um, a, a species of Mandevillea in in South America, which a colleague of mine, Mary Endress in in Zurich, is convinced is bat pollinated, Whoa. but nobody's ever gone out to to study it. So you know testing these these kinds of predictions. The other thing that, that, that this Pollinators of Possinaceae database gives us is information about a Possinaceae species which are introduced uh, and often invasive uh, outside of their, their natural range. Mm. So some of the Asclepius species in, in Eastern Europe, for example, and things like Calotropis and Gomphocarpus in, in South America. It tells us what's pollinating them. And you know we can ask questions about whether the the types of insects which are pollinating them in their native range are the same as the types of insects pollinating them in their uh, in their invasive range. Hmm. But also the frequency and the effect of introduced pollinators on these apostinaceae. So honeybees, for instance, in, in South America seem to be coming be becoming much much more common as pollinators to the native apostinaceae. Now. That if pollinators are driving floral adaptation to particular types of pollinators, 
when honeybees come in, do they disrupt that selection, stabilizing selection or, or directional selection? What's going on there? So there's there's lots of opportunities to ask those sorts of questions with the database as it, as it stands. And actually for, for those sorts of questions, a lot of it isn't about using modern high-tech approaches. It's using very, very old tech approaches of, of getting a pair of walking boots on and a rooks <laughs> <laughs> and getting out into the field and, and, and collecting data there. Right I'm on. a great believer. I'm a great believer. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And it's super exciting to know that this paper is on the horizon for people to read. And, and it just kind of, like you said, establishes this state of the science with these groups of plants and opens the doors to all of these amazing questions and provides a lot of inspiration for this kind of boots on the ground. Just get out there and take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and get out there and take a look at it before it's gone. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So pretty much the only place you, outside of the poles where you can go and not find native apostinacy is the United Kingdom. Hmm. It's one of the few places where there aren't any native apostinates. We've got some introduced species, but nothing native. Weird. And so uh, what it means is that I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to go to places like South Africa, Australia, and South America, and so on, and, and to do that, that field work. But some of those places, certainly that I was, I've studied over the last 20 years, are degraded or they're gone. They've been converted to farmland. And if you, you talk to many other pollination ecologists and, and taxonomists as well, and they tell you the, the same story. So there's a whole bunch of conservation questions I think we can, we can ask using apostinacy as a model system as to how habitat degradation reduces diversity of, of pollinators, what happens when those pollinators go, do those populations maintain their their viability, or do they die over time? Yeah, the, uh, the, the troubling side of all of those curious questions worthy yeah. of asking. But in, in, in thinking about field work and going out, and that's why so many of us get into science and so many of us get into plants, is it's all about going out there and seeing them in situ. And you've obviously been studying some fascinating plants what you mentioned is that you've gone to a lot of great places to see them. I'd be remiss if I let you go and didn't ask you about a favorite story or an encounter in the wild, a plant you've been looking for. Is there anything that really stands out? doesn't need to be the number one because I know that's impossible to answer, but <laughs> what are some memorable experiences in studying these groups of plants? Oh, gosh, so so many. Where do I start? <laughs> um, <laughs> I spent a couple of weeks in Gabon in central Africa. Uh, and actually, that was my first trip to, to Africa. That was in the uh, in about 97, 98. And that was with Scott, Scott Armbruster, who oh, of course nice. we interviewed a, a few weeks ago. So I've known Scott for a long time. Uh, and that was a great interview, by the way. Oh, thank it, you. It, yeah. it, 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 it captured Scott beautifully. Um, <laughs> it was a wonderful talk. <laughs> it, no, he's, he's great. Scott's great. Yeah. And um, I've been trying to collect data on one of these parapleopods that I, that I mentioned, a thing called Parkatina nigra, which I think now is, is Paraploca nigra. Anyway, again, the taxonomists have been fiddling with it. And I spent day after day after day just sitting next to uh, patches of this, of this plant in secondary rainforest in temperatures in the, in the, the high 30 centigrade uh, high humidity. Oof. This this plant was was flowering strongly, and lots and lots of insects were visiting the flowers, but none of them were removing the the translators with the pollen attached. 
and actually looking at the behavior of the insects as they were coming in. In order to pick up the, the translators, you've got to commit, the, the insects have to come in at a very precise angle and from a very in a very precise position and be of an appropriate size. <laughs> and all of the insects were either coming in incorrectly, there were bees coming in and, and hanging upside down on the flowers and stealing nectar, or there were crickets coming in and, and chewing on the corolla, um, <laughs> or there were small wasps coming in, and uh, that were not large enough to, to pick up translators. And on my very last day of field work, where I was despairing of ever seeing the, the legitimate pollinator of this, um, of this flower. From the corner of my eye, I saw the most enormous wasp coming across, quartering the, uh, the ground very, very low, obviously hunting for something, possibly following a, um, an odor plume upstream. And I knew immediately as I saw it, that's got to be a legitimate pollinator. It's the right size I had a, a strong feeling that this was wasp pollinated based on the on the scent and the colour of the, the flower. And sure enough, this thing came in, it grabbed hold of the flower in exactly the right position, it stuck its head in there, it started feeding on the nectar, and then it backed off and, and flew off. <laughs> and I, I only ever saw a couple of these these wasps visiting these flowers. And I managed to capture one, and there was no there was no translator on there. But I'm I'm sure it's the legitimate right. pollinator, <laughs> or for at least that that population. But it's just one of those moments where where I thought, yeah, I'm beginning to really understand what these what these <laughs> flowers are about. I can I can predict this pollinator from from twenty yards yards away <laughs> based on its behaviour and so on. Ah, oh, that's so cool. And that's those are those moments that you live for in the field when it just kind of all comes together. You're in that you've put in enough hours to be lucky enough that that one serendipitous moment takes place. Yeah, yeah. It, interestingly, I, I I never published those observations because because I couldn't definitively prove that those were the pollinators. Sure. They kind of they kind of sit sat there and as as unpublished data. Uh, but we've included it within the uh, <laughs> within the database for the, for this paper, so it's kind of it's kind of seeing the the light of day. Um, unfortunately, in my experience, reviewers don't like it when you say things like, "We don't have definitive data here, <laughs> but we know it's true." Yeah, they'll crucify you uh, for that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> no, they don't. For, like yeah, for a lot less too. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's on record, so we can't do anything about the public listening to this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if people <laughs> want to find out more about your work, find out more about this big database, um, you know, how do how do you recommend listeners find out more about the work in your co that you and your colleagues are are doing? Uh, well, I have a um, a blog www.jeffollerton or one word wordpress dot com. If you just Google Jeff Holland WordPress, you'll you'll find it. And I tend to put you know links to papers and 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 stories about my research up on on there. But also you know speculation around other or, or ideas and thoughts around you know, other aspects of plant pollinator interactions mainly. But thinking about you know the the, the wider context of of loss of biodiversity and habitat degradation, the people can find it it there. And once this paper's published, actually, the, the, the database will be will be freely available and oh, we'll fantastic. keep updating it as well as the data comes out. And, you know, if people want to use it for testing their own particular questions, particular high, hypotheses, then, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be there. That's um, great. 
Yeah. And then my, my job over the summer, once once this paper's out and all the manuscripts that I need to work on have been looked at and revised and sent back to colleagues and so on, uh, my other job over the summer is to finish writing a book on pollinators and pollination, and that's due to go to the, the publisher by the end of October, all going well. But, yeah, writing a book's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> takes longer than you think. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. It's a bit of a process. Um, it's but a bit of a process, yeah. You know what? We'll celebrate uh, the publishing of that book to have you back on the podcast to talk about it. That'd be great. I'd be very happy to, to do some Fantastic. Well, Dr. Ollerton, this has been enlightening, to say the least. Thank you so much for sitting down to talk with us. You're most welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Uh, have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I don't know about you, but I have a new appreciation for Apocynaceae. I'm never going to look at my various stapeliads or milkweeds the same way again, and uh, I'm going to spend a lot more time looking for them in the wild. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did having it. I thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, and while you're there, make sure to give it a review. Reviews help in defense of plants reach a wider audience, and if we're going to cure plant blindness, we need more people listening. I thank everyone who helped us make the Botany of the Cascades documentary a reality. As you listen to this, we will be returning from that wonderful region after filming for a few days in the mountains. And if you've paid attention to Twitter and Instagram, you'll see we've probably had a lot of fun. Stay tuned for more updates on that as we work on editing it all together. It's going to be quite the process, but I'm pretty confident you're going to enjoy the final product. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. A lot of great stuff on the horizon, as always, so make sure you keep checking back in. Until then, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios. This episode was produced in part by Mosin Casmi Takes Pictures, Doeg, Daniel, Clifton, Stephanie, Rochelle, Benjamin, Eli, Rachel, Anthony, Tim, Philip, Lisa, Brent, Lucas, Ron, Plant by Design, Homestead Brooklyn, Brody, Kevin, Sophia, Brian, Mark, Renz, Bendix, Aaron A., Holly, Mountain Misery Farms, Caitlin, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, and Margie.